Hello, and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast provides updates based on the expertise and insights from the attorneys at the Washington, D.C.-based law firm, Courtney Scott, and their guests. This podcast will provide an analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand, and is for informational purposes only and does not provide legal advice. Now, let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. David Fortney with another edition of the DC Insider Employer Update. Today, we're going to unpack those Supreme Court decisions dealing with affirmative action and race discrimination, really just torn from the headlines. And to help me do that, I've got three of my partners joining me today. First, Leslie Silverman. Hey, David. How are you this morning? Super. And also, we've got Bert Fishman. Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Glad to be with you. We're glad to have you. And of course, Nita Beecher. Thanks, David. We're looking forward to this conversation. It's been very exciting so far. Well, it sure has. And just very briefly, so I think everyone knows at this point that the much anticipated decisions dealing with affirmative action and religious discrimination were issued by the Supreme Court. And as expected, they have proven to be very controversial and provided huge developments that employers need to understand. So what we want to try to do in the space of a podcast is see if we can unpack some fairly dense legal rulings and see if we can make sense of those. So let's start with the first one dealing with religious discrimination. Leslie, I'm going to ask you to briefly give us an overview. What are the top lines from that case? Well, the case was called Groff v. DeJoy, and in that case, the Supreme Court considered whether it should overturn a decision it issued back in 1977 in a case called Transworld Airlines v. Hardison, which established the standard for determining what an employer must do to accommodate an employee's religious belief. And that decision, the court had held that an employer was not obligated to accommodate an employee's religion if the accommodation would create more than a de minimis burden on the employer's operations. Well, over the years, the EEOC and the courts have interpreted that case slightly differently. It's been very controversial, particularly among advocates for the religious community who said it gave short shrift to employees' religious accommodation requests. And they wanted to see a standard closer to the ADA. So along comes Gerald Groff, an evangelical Christian and a substitute mail carrier who declined to work on Sundays due to his religious beliefs. Although the post office is definitely a large employer, Groff worked at a tiny post office, and his unwillingness to work on Sundays resulted in his co-workers having to do that work, and ultimately resulted in one co-worker quitting, one transferring, and a third filing a union grievance. The post office disciplined Mr. Groff for his refusal to work on Sundays, and he eventually quit and brought this suit challenging the failure of the post office to reasonably accommodate his religious beliefs. And the lower court sided with the post office, and that teed this whole case up for the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court's decision is unusual and that it was unanimous. And it's also somewhat unusual, yet similar to the other employment decision we're going to discuss today, in that the court did not overturn its prior ruling here, but rather reinterpreted the language of the underlying statute. 
So as a result, the court in Groff adopted a new undue hardship standard, and it's no longer the de minimis burden that employers are used to. Okay. And that sort of sets the table nicely, Leslie. Thank you. Bert, I'm going to call on you because the other blockbuster decision, it's often referred to as the Harvard case, but it's the Harvard and UNC as a consolidated decision involving student admissions. Can you give us just a top lines on what occurred in that case? I'll certainly try. But because it's Harvard and UNC, that meant that both the 14th Amendment to the Constitution and Title VI were included, which meant all public and private institutions of higher learning were covered by this case. And this is one of those cases where the specific ruling may have a less significance than the greater impact on the whole society. It was a six to three ruling with two ringing dissents and a equally ringing concurrence by Justice Thomas. Specifically, the case held that race cannot be considered as a factor in higher education admissions. And that decision may directly affect the practices of a relatively small number of selective colleges. But the skepticism that the court showed toward the use of race will have an impact, I think, on how we view efforts to remediate the effect of past and continuing discrimination outside the university context. And although the case does not directly regulate employment, employers need to be wary and review the programs that these decisions bring to the front of your mind. And we'll talk about the impact on employment later. The court gave one out to colleges. Colleges are permitted to consider an individual's personal circumstances, overcoming adversity, things of that kind, including race, but it cannot do indirectly what they're prohibited from doing directly. That is to say, they cannot make decisions grounded on race. And with that background, we'll talk about the impact on the workplace in a few minutes. Super. Well, Bert, that very helpful summary. To be fair, that was a 280 pages worth of uh, legal analysis <laughs> that Bert covered for us very succinctly and very accurately. And that's extremely helpful. So we have the top lines. Those are the two decisions. That's what they've decided. Let's now really delve into, because I think most employers are like, okay, I've read the headlines. What am I supposed to do? What is the impact of these cases? And that's what I really want to start with. And Leslie, let's start with this Groff decision dealing with accommodations for religious beliefs. What are some of the key takeaways that employers should be focusing on now that we have this newly announced set of principles that we're to follow? Well, the first thing that employers should focus on is that this decision takes effect immediately. So this reinterpretation of undue hardship standard will apply to all pending claims before the EEOC, all cases before the courts, claims that employees might want to bring at any time now or in the future. So it's the future starts now. And the decision in Groff clearly creates a greater burden for employers handling employee requests for religious accommodations moving forward. The court reinterpreted Hardison to wipe out the use of de minimis altogether, including the standard of somewhat more than de minimis, holding that what an employer must show is that the burden of granting accommodation would result in a substantial increased cost in relation to the conduct of the business. That's what the holding was. Now, while the court did not 
adopt the heightened ADA standard that the religious advocates were looking for, this decision will require employers to do a whole lot more when it reviews and considers employees' requests for a reasonable accommodation. Well, what's difficult about it is that the court didn't really give anybody something to grab onto. De minimis, at least for all of his faults, we kind of knew what it was. Well, they said they did give you guidelines. So one, it's greater than de minimis, as Leslie pointed out, but it's less than the ADA's significant difficulty or expense standard. And so where in the middle that is, is yet to be determined and the courts will determine that. So with that in mind, what employers need to do is to look at the policies they have, their current religious accommodation policies and consider they are definitely gonna have to do more individualized assessment, maybe not quite as much as for ADA, but why not go ahead and use a similar type of process that you already have in place, as we talked about when we talked about the Pregnant Worker Fairness Act. You've already got those processes in place, use those, create a form so that you can move forward and make these decision makers. One of the big problems is you need to do this right away, as Leslie pointed out, it is in effect today. And with all of the vaccine mandate activity, religious employees are very aware of their rights. So you got to get ready right now. Let me just add one other thing about the Nita's last point. And that is, you know, first we start from the principle that accommodations have changed and building on the vaccine mandate stuff, employees awareness and demands are growing and employers are certain to face increased activity, whether it's opposition or whether it's support remains to be seen. But DEI programs, diversity, equity, and inclusion programs, are going to be under a microscope. And the court's general approach with this emphasis on quantifiable business justification is going to create a challenge to numerous issues on the design and operations of DEI training, of work assignments, transfers, frankly, on staffing in general. So although the decision looks like it's only about religious discrimination on this one point, I think it's going to have, like the affirmative action decision, a much broader impact. One thing we saw during the vaccine mandate battles is that employees have really been armed by the internet, and they can go to the internet to find out how to make their accommodation request or what to say, and that's not going away. That will just continue to build in the future. Great points. Well, let's turn to the Harvard UNC decisions and try to hit some takeaways on what that means. I mean, first of all, I'll open that discussion. Obviously, as Bert explained, the four corners of the decisions and all the dissents, it deals with admissions of students to higher education institutions. Specifically, for federal contractors, who we focus on quite a bit, it did not address Executive Order 11246 or other federal contractor non-discrimination and affirmative action obligations. So as a matter of law, there are no changes in that sphere. But I think, and this, I sort of want to piggyback, Bert, on a point you were making with respect to religious claims and Leslie's point, I think the heightened awareness that affirmative action has been knocked down and successfully challenged in the one sphere, student admission, is much more likely to lead to much broader challenges by members of the workforce 
that are subjected to federal contractor obligations. And that remains to be seen how that plays out. And Leslie, it was good of you to raise some of those earlier decisions involving COVID vaccine mandates, because as we've talked about on this podcast, a number of those decisions raised a red flag and said, oh, by the way, we think other executive order obligations like 11246 also may be illicit and could be challenged. Whether this occurs, whether this is, I'll call it fuel on that fire that's burning, I think it's likely to be. But let's move on. And Nita, I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the DEI program implications. You look at those pretty closely. What do you see under these decisions? We already know that you're not allowed to use race to make decisions, employment decisions under Title VII. However, where you have diversity programs, there have been claims and lawsuits filed that, in fact, they are using diversity targets, shall we say, goals in a way that's illicit under Title VII. So I think it's very important. There's no need to throw out diversity and inclusion programs, but there is a need to look at them and ensure that they're being rolled out in compliance with Title VII, which is non-discrimination, and make sure you're not discriminating. And that includes things like, we'll talk about some of the various ways that employers try to bring in underrepresented individuals, but everything needs to be open and above board. You need ERGs that are open to everyone, uh, regardless of what the topic is, and just need to really be very conscious of why you're doing DEI. And remember that Chief Justice Roberts is concerned about programs that go on forever. So I think that's an important point to keep in mind as well. Those are great points. Leslie, what are your thoughts on some of the other impacts on DEI? I think it's especially important that employers' outreach and recruitment efforts continue to be diverse, that employers just can't go to HBCUs, not that they've been doing that now, but to start doing that in the future, and that I think certain programs are likely to be highly susceptible to challenge, and they should at least consider discontinuing them. I think the Rooney Rule is going to be an issue moving forward, and the Mansfield rule, which law firms adopted. Interesting. All right. Bert, what's your take on some of this as you sort of delve down into and start to unpack how those decisions implicate for employers' compliance programs? You know, David, I'm glad you asked because I think this is the most interesting aspect of this decision beyond the college uh, and university realm. Although the majority opinion does not explicitly address DEI programs and all their affiliated programs, they are increasingly subject to legal challenge. As I said, they have to be reviewed. The broad language of the opinion and its deep skepticism for the use of racial classifications creates risk, I think, for all race-conscious programs. So if you have a set-aside program for your interns that's highly leveraged for race, that ought to be reviewed and maybe discontinued. If you have mentoring programs, you got to make sure they're open to all people in the same category. And here's one that we haven't talked about. The HR representatives who are responsible for implementing the DEI programs need a lot of training on how to do it right in light of this very skeptical decision regarding the use of race. I agree with those suggestions and think that that starts to embark us on sort of the broader conversation that each of your comments have started to introduce, which is, okay, effectively, now what? 
what does the future look like? Some of the tools that have been used successfully by DEI that are the go-tos you've addressed, and they at least have question marks on them or need to be more carefully examined and maybe calibrated, or in some cases, maybe the Rooney Rule is an example, discontinued altogether. But there also, I think, is a concept here that we should allow and begin thinking through. We don't have the solutions or all the answers today, but can there be new approaches and new justifications? Can DEI programs be reimagined more holistically, more broadly? And I think that that is something that many DEI programs have thought about historically, but it's harder, much harder to implement because it doesn't lend itself necessarily to putting it on a precise grid chart as some of these historical programs have. For example, some of the universities for student admission, and I think it translates to employment, and Chief Justice Roberts' opinion highlighted this, what I would call the grit factors. Has a person overcome adversity? Does a person show leadership? Are these other attributes? Is there an opportunity to rethink what qualifications are? Do we all need college degrees? Because the college degree pool may not be as diverse as other life experiences and other whether military experience or other certifications that may demonstrate ability to meet the basic qualifications for a job and consider putting people in based on those components. And finally, I think the sunsetting of diversity programs, Nita, you touched on that. I think that needs to be a basic in any toolbox or at least a recommitment to recalibrate, and it should be done frequently. Bert. Uh, David, just one kind of footnote. Some of these new programs are going to be tried out, but Several DEI programs are already being challenged in the courts, and those court decisions may have a real role in determining the shape and operation of the DEI programs of the future. I think this case will add momentum to the attacks on DEI, so we have to keep a weather eye out to how the courts are going to join this mix. You know, one other interesting thing in the articles that have rolled out after these decisions that I is to change the name, to drop diversity completely. <laughs> and I know my compliance friends will laugh at this. Have a Title VII compliance officer. Oh, my gosh. What a rash thought that would be. <laughs> well, what do you think, Nita, about the concept? A lot of people are sort of trying to erase the words affirmative action. Are those yesterday's style or do we have to stop using that term? The term affirmative action has always had a taint to it. It's had a taint because of the way it's been used in higher ed. I would argue that it would be wise for the administration to recalibrate their federal contractor programs to be much more anti-discrimination rather than affirmative action, because there's still the whole race balancing issue which Chief Justice Roberts brought up but didn't really talk about. Just as a kind of comical footnote, when affirmative action first started, there was a belief that the office in the Department of Labor should be called the Office of Affirmative Action. That was quickly kiboshed, and we got this name that nobody understands, the Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, and they did that to make sure nobody knew it was the Affirmative Action Office. <laughs> well, you know, the information we've been hearing informally is that the new rulemaking that OFCCP has not yet issued, they may be actually thinking about eliminating or erasing the words affirmative action from the new regulations that are anticipated later this year. 
We'll see. We haven't seen those yet, but that would certainly cement the question of what the government thinks the role should be. I personally don't think you have to. I think you can educate people as to what affirmative action means and what it does not mean. It does not mean quotas. It does not mean discrimination. But I'll leave it to the marketing and branding geniuses to figure out whether that's a a good approach or not a good approach. I, I don't know. All right. Well, we're very close on time, and I want to give each of you kind of the last thoughts, key takeaways for our audience members. Leslie, let me start with you. Thanks, David. As I said, employers really need to be mindful that the DeJoy decision will immediately impact religious accommodation claims before the EEOC and the courts. But more broadly, as we saw in the DeJoy decision and in the other cases before the court, we are going to see more cases based on religious liberty and rights. They are on the uprise and they are of paramount importance to the Supreme Court. Very good. Bert? I'm going to say my takeaway is that the social impact of the affirmative action decisions will affect the role of race and the attitudes towards race in our society for many, many years to come. Nina, what's your takeaway? I think it's an opportunity for corporations to rethink the way that they do what they call DEI and to make sure that all parts of the organization are tied into how that program is rolled out and handled in light of the legal challenges we've just been discussing. I agree with all those takeaways. My takeaway is a very practical one. HR and compliance personnel, put your employment lawyer on speed dial. You want to be in close touch with him or her. The legal landscape has changed and will continue to change rapidly. And many of yesterday's practices may put you in legal jeopardy today. So with that, I want to thank each and every one of you. Thank you, guys. You really did a terrific job in unpacking and I think highlighting what the path ahead is. And we will, of course, keep on this and we will bring you some follow-up discussions And I'm sure there are going to be lots of events that warrant that. So everyone else out there, thank you for joining the podcast today. If you haven't already, subscribe on your favorite podcast provider. And we look forward to seeing you on the future podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thank you for listening to the DC Insider Employer Update, the podcast that provides analysis of significant federal developments affecting the workplace that employers need to understand. You can subscribe to the DC Insider Employer Update podcast wherever you get your podcast, which includes Apple, Spotify, and Google. Additional information about our podcast is located on the Fortney Scott website at fortneyscott.com. Thanks again for listening to the DC Insider Employer Updates. Mm-hmm.